today's conversation, Mr. Madhuri, we'll, we'll, we'll split it into three parts. Uh, one part would be about, you know, the more topical, more, more current in terms of, you know, what is the trends that you're mentioning, the trends that you're seeing in terms of the hiring and, you know, hope for, uh, for people either looking or uh, for a job or to both the employee and the employer. So that would be one part of the conversation. The other part of the conversation would be more timeless that, you know, what would be your, uh, your guides? You, you, you've studied abroad, you've seen global uh, uh, cultures, global hiring, you know, ways of working across continents. So uh, your session or your sense in terms of, you know, how the, how people management should happen, team management, whether it is hiring, scaling with the right people, delegating, etc. And the third part then uh, would be your own journey, your own experiences as a leader, what has made you uh, come uh, this far. So let me start uh, there, uh, Mr. Maduri. Let me start uh, by requesting you to spend another uh, five to eight minutes sharing your journey, how you started, your uh, opportunities, your challenges, and what do you see Prasad Maduri in another five to 10 years uh, from now looking like? Well, I, I'm not sure five to ten years is, sounds very far away, and you know I'm I'm 61, so I'm not I'm not exactly a spring chicken. That's very young. That's so, very very young. <laughs> but uh, uh, my journey actually started, uh, uh, you know, when I completed my chartered accountancy qualification in 1981, which is almost 40 years back, and uh, then I worked for about a year and a half with Ram Pudar and Godfrey Phillips in India, which had just been taken over by Philip Morris. Uh, you know, KK Modi was a partner up there, so it was a very interesting time. Then I went to the US and did, did a, a doctorate in business administration, and as a consequence of that, decided to spend some time in academics. So I, I continued as an assistant professor uh, in the School of Business and Economics in University of Kentucky in Lexington for about five years, got tenured, became an associate professor, and as the quirk of fate would have it, came back to India in 1990 and never went back. Uh, so I came back to India in 1990 when India was kind of exploding at the seams. I don't know how many of your uh, guests will recall uh, 1990 is when VP Singh became Prime Minister. Uh, you know, and we, in 91, we ran out of gold and that's when we basically, we ran out of money and that's when the liberalization under Manmohan Singh and the Narsimha took place. So I kind of went through that journey. I spent uh, four years with HCL. Uh, you know, uh, uh, initially started as uh, Mr. Nader's executive assistant for about nine months and then followed through for three years as a CFO of two of the joint ventures in HCL. Uh, and then I followed, after that, I joined a multinational company called Silicon Graphics. It was the hottest technology company in Wall Street at that time. And it was a startup in the country. So I started as CFO, spent about five years, and then they made me the managing director. Uh, and I must say, that's really when I learned to sell. You know, and sell technology, very high-end technology. So it was a, it was a massive paradigm shift for me. Uh, so I, I, I was the managing director for India, then Southeast Asia and China for about eight years. And uh, at the, in 2006 end, uh, at the age of 47, I said I need to do something different. You know, I kind of gone through 31 quarters, uh, you know, quarter by quarter growth, weekly reporting. I need to do something different. So I decided to get into consulting. I've been in academics industry. I said, why not consulting? That will probably wind up my journey. And uh, then my good friends, the big four, told me that I'm too old to join them. Uh, it'll take me, you know, by the time I become a, a, a profit partner, I'll be too old. 
So then they suggested, why don't they go into the sphere of the executive search? Because that's where, uh, you know, your experience, your age, your connect, all really matters. And that's what I did. I entered executive search in the end of 2006, and now I'm, I'm uh, completed, uh, completed 14 years now. So 11 years in my previous firm, from Amrop, where I was part of the equity and the board and the senior partner, and now the last three years in Orgis Bernson as the managing partner for India. Fantastic. So I, when I looked at you, uh, and, and, and you looked at your profile for the very first time, the very first reaction I had was, you are the leader of the leaders. So how is it being at the helm of an organization which is bringing leaders to different companies? What's been your biggest people lesson in the past 40 years of journey that you've completed? I, I, uh, I think one thing I consistently learned, uh, Deepshika, over, I, say, I would say, the last uh, 30 years, and I've been leading teams since 1991. Uh, I think the most important thing that I've learned that is to listen, you know. When I started my career as a leader, I thought I knew all the answers and I used to be very directive. I used to tell people what to do. Uh, I, I, think, I think it took me some time to realize, but people have opinions, they must be heard. And more often than not, they know more than you do. You know? uh, so the best way to lead is to channelize views, uh, not build consensus all the time, but channelize views and understand what are the great options and then use your judgment skills and identifying the right option and selecting it and moving ahead. And that also helps you carry the team forward. And there's nothing stronger than an inclusive approach to your team. So I, I would say for a strong leader, the most important thing is the willingness and the ability to, to hear, to listen. Uh, you know, I hear some really strong leaders who don't, who, who have all the opinions uh, but rarely listen to the teams. And that's very unfortunate. Fantastic. So that takes me to the second part of our conversation, uh, Mr. Maduri, which is on the overall uh, hiring landscape. You know, you've seen, of course, you've seen, as we said, we've seen things across borders and across, uh, across years. What is your current sense of uh, the hiring uh, uh, ecosystem or uh, I don't know what to what to what to call it. I mean, the trends or the the current circumstances, the current context, the numbers. What is your sense of the hiring market in India right now? Uh, so, so hiring in India is honestly multifaceted. Uh, you know, you you have campus hiring, which is very different from hiring at the mid management level, which is quite different to hiring at leadership levels. So it's almost like three, four, five different buckets. Uh, you know, and then of course you've got different models of hiring. You've got the pure selection firms, recruitment firms that uh, don't do too much value addition. They're very good at what they're doing. That's identify people. They could do LinkedIn, uh, you know, knock research and come out with a whole bunch of CVs. And then of course you've got the, the what I call as the more value added uh, uh, recruitment firms that is the executive search firms. Uh, which do everything from not just identification, but also the evaluation, assessment, holding the candidate, uh, taking a selection decision, uh, making sure the candidate joins, which is very important. Uh, and then making sure the candidate integrates into the cultural milieu of the company and is successful. So most, most uh, for me personally, most of my hiring mandates would uh, range anywhere from nine to 15 months each. Uh, you know, and it, it's uh, nine months could be from when we get the mandate uh, to the time we actually officially sign off uh, our, our warranty guarantee period. 
And uh, if it's a new client, uh, the business development and building a relationship and winning could take a few more months. So these these honestly are long ticket, long lead cycle, uh, you know, uh, 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 services. Uh, you know, very different. On the other hand, if you were to do campus hiring, and I did campus hiring from a previous firm, Amrock, for about uh, uh, I think uh, eight out of eleven years. Uh, you know, we used to go to a whole bunch, whether the IAMs or used to go to you know uh, IMT Ghaziabad, the four school, or go to uh, Narsimhanji and Bombay. Uh, you know, very different out there. I mean, that's honestly, you, you do a little bit of preparatory work. You go there, you try and meet as many people as is possible, take them to different uh, levels of, uh, you know, group discussion, interview, a second level of interview, et cetera, et cetera. You know, take them to a psychometric testing process. All that you do on, day, on one day, you know, try and do it on day zero. To, so you get the best students. And by the night, you've got to take a decision and make an offer. So it's, it's almost like, you know, it's almost like, uh, you know, a 20 over game. While uh, genuine leadership hiring of the model I mentioned to you is probably a five-day test match. So very different models. Uh, whether it be in the U.S. or it be in India, it's not different at all. My counterparts in the U.S. do exactly the same thing I do. Uh, they probably would do three, four weeks of rigorous research, a candidate identification, development, assessment, then make our recommendations and work with the client to make a hire. And uh, eventually, it could be six, nine, fifteen months process all put together. So, uh, so you know, uh, global trends have all come to India. So we are not, we are nowhere behind the world. I think we are very contemporary when it comes to executive search uh, processes and trends. Uh, the search rigor, the search processes in India are identical. Uh, Hiring in India, has it gone down the technology uh, route of LinkedIn, uh, which has become much more prevalent in the advanced West? Uh, probably not to that level. I think that's one difference. Uh, you know, uh, uh, using LinkedIn, for example, as a medium for hiring has become much more prevalent in the West. In India, I still think uh, there are a whole bunch of job portals and LinkedIn hiring is probably on the lower side. Uh, and obviously, LinkedIn hiring is limited to a certain to only identifying candidates. They can't do assessment and other things for you. So uh, the, the trends, uh, uh, the trends tend to be they are different organizations that specialize in their niche, and they kind of uh, service different kinds of requirements and and clients. So, for example, we do the high end CXO level leadership hiring uh, in a retail model. Uh, and we do nothing else. Uh, and then you've got firms that do selection, recruitment, and do it very well. But they're not really the niche high-end CXO hiring firm like we are. So, so different, different uh, genre, uh, different niches, and that's how we all operate. So, I mean, so you, you talked about different levels, right? I mean, from the campus side to the leadership and, and then beyond. Which is the level, uh, Mr. Maduri, that you particularly find most difficult to hire in India? If you were to say segregate your 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 hierarchy into say five levels or, or three, I mean I I'll rest to your definition. But what level do you believe uh, would be most difficult? What are the levels, and then what which one would be most tough to hire as far as India is concerned? So so think of a pyramid. Uh, the peak of the pyramid is leadership hiring, which typically would be for CEOs, board members, uh, CXOs. Uh, and then you come down the pyramid, you get to senior management, which could be N minus two, N minus three, and you get to mid management. Uh, 
and then you start getting down to the entry level, which is all campus hiring, or may not be campus hiring, not everyone goes to campus and hires. Uh, so uh, the, 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 the most difficult uh, hiring, the most complex hiring always tends to be in the leadership level at the peak of the pyramid. Uh, one, uh, you know, uh, because the, the, the talent pool in India at the leadership level, and I'm talking of really seriously good candidates, uh, the talent pool tends to be limited. Uh, so probably in half our searches, we are, we are adding on the Indian diaspora from outside of India. Uh, we are also looking at expatriates with our clients' consent. Uh, so, you know, again, sounds very ironic, doesn't it? A country of 1.36 billion people, you know, give or take a, a few million here and there. Uh, but the talent pool in India is still very limited. And, uh, you know, the, the reason for that is historically, we were primarily a public sector undertaking dominated country. Uh, you know, and the talent in the public sector undertakings are very good, but they're not necessarily very entrepreneurial. They're not very decisive because of the nature of decision making. So eventually a lot of the PSU talent transitioned into the private sector and that became the starting point. So there, there's, I would just say it's 25, 30 years before genuine private sector talent uh, came out on its own. And that would be the people who now are touching 50 years of age, you know, probably a decade younger than me. Uh, people who came into the job, uh, you know, pool towards the late 80s or early 90s, you know, uh, the, the pre-millennials is really speaking the talent pool. So we don't have that 100-year uh, uh, history of uh, private sector talent pool in India, unlike UK or the US market and all that, it's still relatively new in India. Uh, and because of the fact that we are catching up all the time with the West, we've tended to jump cycles, steps into the cycle. Uh, so eventually what's happened a lot of times is the talent pool has not necessarily grown over time. So that is probably the most difficult form of hiring. Uh, to go after a highly valued leader, convince the leader that he or she needs to make a change. And she's become very important today because diversity hiring is the, the need of the R and very contemporary. Uh, and you'd be surprised how little diversity talent there is. And, you know, I, I'm all for diversity talent. I'm a huge fan. Uh, Audrey's Bunsen organization has a diversity and inclusion practice at a global level of the UK. But the reality is diversity talent at the leadership level is quite limited across the, across the sector. So identifying the right talent, convincing them, assessing them, taking them to the full cycle, handholding them, uh, you know, uh, it, it tends, tends to be quite tough. So it's probably the most complex form of hiring. Uh, any hiring stuff, make no mistake, you go to an IAM, go to IAM Ahmedabad, go to ISB, for example, in Hyderabad and convince a very high profile, high potential student, uh, you know, that they should not go to Amazon or Flipkart, but they should come and join a brick and mortar, uh, you know, organization is very difficult because aspirations and expectations are like that. So any form of hiring is tough, but leadership hiring is probably the most complex. Excellent. So I would, uh, you know, there's a, there's a different model which is now emerging and I, I, I don't know how much of it is now in India, perhaps I'll need your opinion on that. When particularly for the leadership hiring, it, the reverse model, wherein the executive gives the mandate, the individual gives the mandate and then the organization goes out and searches for a particular position. Has that come to India yet? I know that some, there's organizations in Europe particularly who are doing, uh, who take such mandates. Do you see that in India? Uh, it's a, uh, I mean, uh, the model uh, that's in vogue in India is more what is called uh, outplacement. So, for example, if I as a, I as a, uh, a senior executive say enough is enough, I want a change, 
you know, I got two ways, two, three ways of dealing with it. I can reach out to search professionals like myself and uh, say, hey, I'm interested. This is my CV. Uh, can you look for opportunities? Uh, that's a limited form because most search firms operate on retained mandates. Uh, you know, they're not in the business of uh, recommending. Uh, or or you can you can start uh, you know uh, through the network of friends start looking around the third is essentially uh, you know go to a firm and say i'm willing to pay your fee for placing me uh, what you call as outplacement services uh, it's not it's not that much in vogue in india uh, you know because the whole concept of trying to place one individual honestly is way more difficult then taking on a corporate mandate and then finding a pool of candidates and trying to find out who's better suited for that position. Uh, I probably, my entire career of 14 years in executive search have done, uh, you know, maybe around five or six outplacements and more as a, more as a favor to my client because they, they have a senior person and they decide he's not the right person for the future, but they want to do the right thing for that person. So they want outplacement services. So it's a client mandated service not so much a, a, an individual mandated service, but that's really the way people try and do it in India. Uh, otherwise, you've got to use the network, uh, which is very tough. Absolutely, I agree. So, uh, so you've seen the sector. I mean, your your thoughts are so crystallized about uh, about various facets of the sector. Define the hiring or the recruitment uh, industry in India for me, Mr. Maduri. I mean, it's it's a very uh, uh, it's very highly populated, but extremely vague still. Could you define that in, in your own uh, words? Uh, I, I, mean, I mean, I think the, the hiring industry is a, is a full medley from mom and pop shops, individual contributors, all the way to big global firms. Uh, and ultimately, I think they're all, they're all trying to place candidates uh, for a client. I mean, essentially, we are client-oriented. Uh, but we've got to be fair to the candidate. And um, if you if you ask if you ask what's our what's our ultimately ultimate mission, I think it is to it's an, or just we call it the three C's. So client, candidate, and colleague. So so you know you're paid by the client. Uh, so you got to respect the client's mandate, but you got to say no. Sometimes you got to tell the client no. That's not happening in the market. Uh, you've got to be very fair to the candidate because candidates actually hand over the career in a sense to you. They depend on your advice and what you tell them to do. And sometimes you have to tell the candidate, this is not the right career move for you. Trust me, it's not. Uh, and the third is you work with colleagues in India and across the world. Uh, I know within my own organization, we are a global organization. So you've got to be collaborative with the colleagues. So uh, most most hiring happens in that context. You know, you operate with a client, you operate with candidates, and you've got colleagues that work with you. Uh, and colleagues in the context is just not search consultants like myself. We've got research teams, we've got administration. There's a whole group of people who do different work, and the roles sometimes are well-defined. The roles sometimes can be ambiguous. Uh, it's a very large industry, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I get a lot of LinkedIn invites, which would which is quite obvious for someone in my career, in my profession. Uh, but people sometimes call and say, hey, we're not interested in yet another CEO job. We want to come into the search industry and then ask them why. Uh, they say, we hear that's the right thing to do. And, uh, and it probably is, uh, but it's not an easy move to make. Uh, it's not an easy move to make. Uh, I sometimes think uh, entering this industry at a younger age is probably better off because you get time to develop relationships, build a build that connect that's essential, build your repute as an effective search consultant. 
you know, I think today if I had a chance, I probably should have come into the search industry when I was 37, not 47, you know. I mean, I've been very successful, but 37 would have made me even more successful at a younger age, you know. So I, I think that's a good learning to take away. That's, that's the aspiration of, you know, the five, seven years. Uh, but, but you've done very well for yourself and you're such a, a legend to, uh, to talk to. So that, that I want to understand more about these, this, this industry. You know, you, you, as you rightly said, you know, right from mom and pop to individuals and then to global firms like yours. But, the, you know, the, there has been, as you were talking about, you know, the, the job portals, whether it's a Nokri or a LinkedIn or Jobs Ahead and, and then so on and so forth. I mean, the, the new ones which keep cropping up uh, all the time. So, so the listing part, the access part has been taken out. The difficulty of access. So what is the value add that, that the industry still promises? Is the, end, the entry, we believe, is very easy to the sector or this industry? Because, you know, anybody who has a few contacts can just enter and then start, you know, connecting the dots. But what is it that keeps people here? And what are the, say, three things which make an organization or an individual a success in this sector? So uh, the, uh, the, what I call is the database sites are very valuable. Uh, they've taken over a significant part of the candidate identification process, uh, which, which, but that is only one step in the full search process. I mean, the full search process is probably around 15, 16 steps. One step, the candidate identification, which is a very important step, is now being serviced by the database. But it is not comprehensive. I must say uh, a lot of very senior people don't have their names and details on LinkedIn. You'd be surprised how many don't. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of CEOs and all actually believe uh, that their personal brands are strong enough. They don't need to be on LinkedIn. Uh, so it's not, it's, not a, it's not that LinkedIn has all the candidates that are relevant for a position out there. Uh, so that is, that's, I think, one gap. But by and large, uh, whether it's LinkedIn or Nokri or the other database sites, they, they do a fairly good job of capturing a lot of talent. So that's one thing they do. But if you look, if you look and say the search process is far more complex, uh, you know, if I had to say what's the biggest challenges in search, uh, Deepshika, I think it is uh, the right assessment of a candidate. Do they, do they fit? I mean, it's not skills alone that we're matching. We're also matching cultural fitment. I mean, the cultural fitment in a Tata company is very different than that, say, in Reliance, than that, say, in a more entrepreneurial startup, very different cultures. So the whole assessment of the cultural fitment, what we look at is the fitment of mindset, you know, and mindset reflects the ability to change and the ability to act in the face of disruption. So that's a very important aspect, which obviously none of these database sites do. And the other aspect which is equally important is holding the candidate for a certain period of time through the process. I mean, like I said, the process can go on for nine months and an offer may be made at the end of three months. So holding a candidate for 90 days, you know, it's very complex. Candidates can change their mind all the time. You know, candidates can withdraw, you know, they can decide, they can change their mind. They cannot they decide one day they can't relocate. It's all human beings ultimately, you know, you're dealing with humans. I mean, you know, humans can be so fickle and volatile. So the, the bottom line is the candidate holding process is as critical as the candidate assessment process, which is as critical as the candidate identification process. Uh, and simultaneously, you've got to manage a client. Uh, so the client management process is very important. So these are the, these are the broad aspects that have to be captured in a search. 
if you ask me what are the three uh, you know i wouldn't say must but the three uh, important facets to be successful in search uh, i would say clearly one is having uh, uh, some form of a network you know not everyone has a perfect uh, network or rolodex or connect but uh, having good network among ceos owner promoters board members and of course senior hr directors is important uh, that really helps you in the business development process uh, i think two is uh, you know all of us cannot do everything i mean it's a huge market out there and so many verticals so many segments so many positions i think understanding what you think you can do and showing you have the domain understanding out there so for example if i'm say i'm good in industrial or infrastructure uh, it's because i've worked in the sectors before or it's because i've done so many searches in the sectors so the domain understanding is important because when you have a discussion with a client they appreciate if they if they realize that you understand the sector well not as well as they do they are the masters but ultimately you got good working knowledge of of the sector you understand the business drivers the challenges the business models it makes life easier for them the third aspect is inevitably do you have the right search credentials uh because dipshika's search is a science it's not hit and try it's not you know hit and error it's a science you need to have a clear process by which you do search and you do it every day so so the bottom line is these are the three uh, you know legs of the stool that's necessary to succeed you know network search credentials and some domain understanding excellent excellent so uh, one last question on this part that i would have this uh, mudri is that you know you you've seen growth of organizations from an x level to y level for the smaller hiring organizations out there what would be your say three lessons my my favorite number is 3 because i believe that at three your attention span kind of stays sharpest so what would be three lessons for a hiring organization which is looking to scale i i think the first and most obvious is they should settle for the best talent should not compromise uh you know sometimes uh, uh, smaller organizations startups believe they can't get the best talent that's not true you need you you need to get the the, the you need to get the best talent who has the mindset that they will enjoy the industry you're in the startup the startup mentality is different than a large established company you know so i think i think one is settle for the best talent two i think is uh, uh, identify the compensation structure and model that will work for you uh you know very hard for a startup to match what a unilever does or what a reliance industry does you know uh so you got to do what you can do and have the right model to attract the talent and i think the third part which is not necessarily linked to hiring but as a consequence is the ability to retain the talent i mean you you hire the best talent uh you know you come with a very attractive compensation model and gvs they leave in 6 months it's a disaster and i see a lot of startups going through that phase they're not able to hold back the talent so so they need to have the right talent holding talent management strategy and a lot of time at senior levels that strategy has to be uh, handled and mentored by the founder promoter or the ceo or a senior board member it cannot be delegated down the line you know hiring is ultimately a line manager's function it is not a hr function hr is a facilitator you know 
the line manager is the best HR manager when it comes to recruitment. If I'm a candidate, I am much more concerned what the, what the line manager is telling me because ultimately that person is going to be my reporting boss than what any HR person is telling me. So someone has to own it. And it typically has to be owned by someone who ultimately will lead the organization. So if I were to ask a question completely offline, I know this is, this is your client base and, and you probably be guarded when answering this question. Amongst your clients, who's your user and who's your buyer? Who's a bigger influence and who would you go and sell to? Do you sell to the user, which is the line manager in, in your case? Or would you sell to the buyer, which is the HR uh, team? Or is HR the buyer? Or is, it, is the buyer also the, the line manager in your case? Uh, in, in most large companies, both are involved. Uh, you know, the, uh, the line manager, seeing the CEO, has, has a very important say because ultimately they are the people who decide what positions are required, especially when it comes to new positions and, and uh, business directions. Uh, HR is obviously the facilitator, but HR ultimately runs the process, uh, you know, of selecting a search firm and uh, they, they go through the rather, you know, rather tough process of negotiation and all that, you know, so they are the, they are the process owner. Uh, when you look at smaller organizations, typically you find it is the CEO who will be the decision maker, you know, and, and the HR person may not be senior enough in that case to actually, they, they're more the process facilitators, not the process owners. Uh, so if I'm working with a large Indian conglomerate, a big promoter owned corporation, uh, you know, ideally the network should hopefully be at the promoter's level or at least at, at a, a whole time director's level, a CEO's level. Uh, or it should be at the group HR director's level, you know. Uh, those are the levels at which a lot of decisions get taken, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, the more extensive the network, uh, Deepshika, the better off. You know, it's like key account management. Key account management is not limited to one connect point or one network. You've got to develop a, a more comprehensive network and you've got to kind of identify who manage that network from your organization. So it's all, it's all Miller-Hyman key account management in one form or the other. Very last question I have, uh, Mr. Duri, is uh, about, you know, the, the culture fit. You know, you talked about organization, you talked about a long lead time that you yourself, uh, you know, would like to incorporate in the process by structure, by design, by will, uh, that, you know, to make sure that the fit is right, particularly, particularly at the senior level. How do you gauge the culture in your client organization? Do you have structured mechanisms to gauge and therefore get the right person? Or is it more what is being said and discussed? Uh, both subjective and objective. Subjective in the sense you try and do as much debriefing as is possible before the actual search process starts. So we call it the search diagnostic. So like a, like a physician, you try and diagnose as much of the issue. You try and diagnose what, what drives success in the organization, who are the successful people in the organization, and what characteristics do they bring to the table and what works and doesn't work. So the do's and don'ts, uh, you talk to as many stakeholders as is possible. Uh, and sometimes they all give you different perspectives, doesn't matter, you're still getting knowledge. Uh, that's a subjective part. And then you kind of build that into a filtering mechanism when you look at candidates in the assessment process. Uh, the objective part is having, uh, uh, having an, uh, uh, a leadership assessment psychometric tool that you can apply based on what you understand in the debriefing and what priorities are being assigned by the client. So sometimes clients say the leadership maturity is the single most important thing for me. You know, 
sometimes clients say the ability to handle ambiguity is the most important thing to me you know i don't want people to come from a very structured background because you know they can't they can't handle ambiguity uh sometimes clients say hey i need an entrepreneur be clear about me i mean i be clear about that uh, you know get someone who thinks like me as a businessman these these are you know these are uh, different priorities that we try and put into our leadership assessment tool and we ask the candidates to go through the tool and the idea is to get to see whether the results validate our own thinking so we're not asking the tool to replace our thinking our thinking ultimately and our decision making comes from our debriefing and our interview of the candidate but the idea is there's a validation mechanism we tend to use after all we're very human we can sometimes select lemons and not realize it you know so idea is to avoid that so so this is the process we tend to follow it's forcing me to ask the leading question i would have not asked that but but how do you judge the unstated you know the spoken ones are very clear but the the culture is largely unspoken right uh sometimes it's observing in a debriefing you know uh, so many times when you go for a debriefing with a uh, owner promoter a founder a ceo uh, the body language you know a lot of people say politically correct things but the body language is so important i mean uh, uh, when you when you ask a question about uh, how autonomous is the role how much delegation the i mean the the language can be perfect oh we are totally empowered we believe in people the body language is more important you know i mean the body language sometimes is are you kidding <laughs> there's only one decision maker that that's me so i think i think we'll learn to recognize body language i i prefer to do debriefing in person which in the covid era has been very difficult to be honest so we're trying to do as much zoom calls like this uh but uh, the idea i think the idea is also to ask multiple stakeholders because then you start to get different messages and then you filter through the noise and try and understand what works in the organization uh that's why i say again dipshika search is a science you know it's it's not it's not hit and run it's a science i i i i know i have to let go of the conversation but i'm not letting uh, being able to let go i'll ask one more last question and then and then that's not fair the uh, you know as a leader as as yourself i mean you you've been there done that scene so much and therefore you can make those judgment calls when you when you see the body language when you see the structure or the stated of the unstated how do you bring it to 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 life when uh, the front ending is done by your team how do you ensure that your team carries the same set of exposure or thought process as you so depending on the uh, you know depending on the complexity of the client and the seniority of the position uh, you know uh, different team members would go uh, if it is a large client and uh, you know the briefing is being done uh, by someone i know personally obviously i'll go it's a it's a relationship network issue uh on the other hand if it's an existing client and other team members have dealt with it you know it's very possible one of them could go uh you know hard for me to be present every day and that's not the logic you know uh younger team members learn very fast and they got to grow uh you know so i think you take you take the call uh on the fly uh you know honestly uh and uh, you know you you i try and prioritize my time you know i try and prioritize my time uh, i don't believe in working more than 45 50 hours a week you'll be surprised i don't work more than 45 50 hours you know i can't after 8 hours a day i'm not productive i'm quite inefficient as it is so the bottom line i think is to prioritize time and uh, use the young people they all very smart people i mean someone who's in the early 30s will be amazed how smart they are you know uh, 
lot of times when I do a search, I'll do it with, I'll have an associate or a senior researcher work with me. Sometimes a consultant, a young consultant work with me. They're all 30 to 35, incredibly smart people, very ambitious. Uh, so you've got to channelize the energy and you've got to know when to step in and when to allow them to run the show. So that's, I think it's part of leadership to do that. You've got to do it. Excellent. So I've, I have a few questions coming in now. Uh, Abdul asks, on the lines of culture, companies have been quite a lot, uh, companies have been quite a lot, have their culture affected by the place that they're located in. So it's location-based. Do you see that going away with remote teams and more character of the company coming up? So will the culture be diluted with the entire work from home and remote working? Not, uh, not sure I agree with Atul. I mean, whether the, whether the company is headquartered in Delhi or Mumbai or Pune or Calcutta, uh, I've not had a challenge. I think it's more the mindset of the people who run the organization and their own view of how to deal with people. So it's, uh, at one level, it, I think it's a little bit of the process orientation and the empathy towards people that counts. Uh, you know, uh, working remote from home obviously has been very helpful, uh, but does have its challenges. In our profession, uh, you know, doing remote assessment is not very simple. Uh, you know, I honestly say assessment by video can never replace face-to-face -face assessment. Uh, you know, so many things come out. Uh, but we all, we all are making the best of what's available and doing, I think we're doing a good job of that. Uh, but I don't think location is a constraint. I've heard the story of Mumbai versus Delhi. Uh, and I have half my clients are in Mumbai and you know, close to the other half is sitting in Delhi and they're all, they're all very similar. I was waiting for you to say that. <laughs> and by the way, I'm, I'm a hard Delhiite, okay? I've been in Gurgaon for 30 years. So am I. So am I. But I would need a hire in Bombay. So... <laughs> Okay, so Mahesh asks another question. What's your view on the gig economy taking off in India? Uh, do you think there is a transitionary thinking by employers and candidates towards this concept? Uh, Mahesh Jain is from Hirexa. He's a director and CEO of a UK-based talent supplier firm based out of London. Uh, yes, it's, it's taking off. We see more and more evidence of that. Uh, you know, of course, it's picked up a little bit in the in the recent past, but even before that, clearly the gig economy was very much around. Uh, you know, uh, we see a lot of evidence of clients now looking at what they call as uh, short-term contractual skills, uh, could even be part-time, uh, to solve specific business problems or skill problems. Uh, there's a clear thought process in with some of our clients that they don't need, uh, you know, everyone to be 24 by 7. Even the working from home, uh, they believe that actually there's probably a need for a certain proportion of the workforce, uh, you know, to become uh, part-time. And uh, that really would help the gig economy because you, you have so many professionals in the gig economy who could be working for four clients, six clients simultaneously and getting, you know, genuine satisfaction and also making good money. So that's clearly taking off right now. My, I have an, a, a last leading question to that, Mr. Viduri, is that when you say gig economy, how does that impact the hiring industry? I mean, do you have a business model factored into that as well? Uh, the business model moved towards, moves towards short-term contractual appointments. Uh, we, we actually globally have an organization uh, in our group uh, which does interim hiring. It's called Augers Interim. So it does short-term contractual appointments. Uh, and it is uh, more specialized. Not all search firms do that, but a few of them do it. Some of them do it informally. Uh, so so that is, that's really the way the hiring is happening with the gig economy. Is it profitable? 
is it is it a business model that yeah. uh, that organizations are looking at yeah the the degree of difficulty of hiring uh, short term contractual people tends to be higher because people don't want to wait 6 months to get someone to work for them for 6 months you know they kind of they kind of want someone as of yesterday so the 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 business model response to the speed and efficiency you've got to adopt to complete those kind of requirements so the business model is quite lucrative actually if if i as a large company want someone for 6 months and i need it yesterday i'm willing to pay you know whatever would be the price to get that skill on board at the earliest because that that's a priority which should not be deferred excellent perfect thank you very much uh, mr mudri what a lovely conversation and uh, i would in fact you know once we have the edited version out i would i would love to invite you to uh, to a master class with uh, speaking it's been phenomenal uh conversation I, i i still am finding it difficult to let go because i have more questions coming in but uh, but thank you thank you very much thank you very much pleasure catching up with dipshika and uh, thank you for for hosting me today thank you very much thank you mr thank you for your team uh, to your team as well for helping us set up this up thanks bye bye bye